Hello and welcome to YHTV's Trinity of Life. This is episode 51. I'm Christina Suzuma, your host for this program. Thank you so much for joining me as I continue to explore the wonderful world of healing arts, meditation, therapies, and the many modalities of helping each of us find balance in our individual journeys. We're excited to meet those who are on the leading edge of creating change on this planet. I'd like to take a moment today. It is April 24th, 2013. It is uh, a special day for one uh, organization by the name of Peace Over Violence. Today is their event called Denim Day. And as you can see, I have my little Denim Day pin on, Denim Day USA, and really it is worldwide. It is to acknowledge those individuals who have been abused or violated in some way, be it men, women, children. And so today is a tribute and acknowledgement to all of those. Now, our guest today is an amazing woman whose passion is clearly in the art of classical homeopathy, nutrition, and preventative medicine. I'm sure you will have much to ask her. So at any time during this live presentation, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. And just remember to click submit so it will show up on my screen and I can share it with our guests. Or if you prefer to dial into our conference line and ask the question or make the comment directly yourself, you're welcome to do so. The number is 323-476-3672. The ID is 607-393-POUND. And if that went by too fast for you, not to worry. That number will show up on the screen during the show. Today's topic is understanding and improving libido. I'd like us all to welcome Dr. Tony Bark. Good day to you, Dr. Bark. Good day. So thank you so much for joining us here on YHTV and uh, sharing with our global community your expertise. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, Dr. Bark, can you share with us uh, a little bit about your history and your background, where you're from and your journey? Sure. I am from the Chicago area, Evanston, which is where I live now. I have left. <laughs> Not like I've always been here, but I grew up here. And um I studied undergraduate, I studied anthropology and archaeology and psychology and went to medical school thinking um, that I was going to go to med school and then to Chinese medical school to be an acupuncturist and herbalist. Um, However, I really loved neurology and neuropsych and wound up studying pediatrics and rehabilitation, neurorehabilitation medicine, uh, running a pediatric emergency room. And then I kind of discovered homeopathy. There was a conference in Chicago and went to it, didn't understand anything they said, but was quite intrigued. (laughs) Nothing. I understood nothing they said, but I went to the summer school program and just fell in love. Like this was definitely the right thing for me. I figured there were enough acupuncturists, not enough homeopaths. So I went down the path of studying classical homeopathy over the next uh, two decades um, and really just switched paradigms. You know, I mean, I never quite fully bought the Western paradigm anyway. I mean, I looked at so many physicians and um, 
saw how unhealthy they were and saw that medicine is not the practice of health. <laughs> it is not the practice of restoring health, which is really what I've always wanted to do. But I was fascinated with studying the sciences. Mm. And along my journey, I wound up doing um, response work in Haiti um, using integrative practices. And one of the integrative practices I was using was um, an electrical hand device um, and as well as homeopathy. Um, and it just got me intrigued regarding the autonomic nervous system and the autonomic nervous system response. I've always loved sex, so was interested in sex always. But, you know, now I understand it from a, a more of an autonomic nervous system response um, and look at it a little differently and help my patients achieve a, a healthier sex life by understanding their autonomic nervous system as well as other things, hormonal systems. I've always, you know, I've been using bioidentical hormones since the early 90s when it was not in fashion. It is quite in fashion now, but it was not in fashion then. Um, can you, so can that's you give just us kind a, of where I've got today. Can you give us a little bit of, um, uh, can you articulate that bio, what did you call it? The, the bioidenticals? Yes, the bioidenticals. Well, you know, in the 90s, most women that were perimenopausal or menopausal were immediately put on Premarin and mm -hmm. maybe Provera, maybe. Uh, Provera was a synthetic progesterone, um, which just is not chemically identical to progesterone at all. And the Premarin was, as you may or may not have known, it was from horse's urine and had 500 different estrogens. And the human uh, female, well, the human uh, male and female basically has three basic estrogens and then their metabolites, which there's just a few of. And they're, and so they're, they're metabolized very differently than the horses. And, um, you know, in fact, cholesterol, which is the building block of, of all the steroid hormones, which are also the sex hormones, uh, depending on what's going on in your body and how you detoxify and if you have drugs on board, you can change your cholesterol into progesterone, into testosterone, testosterone into estrogen, mm. back and forth. Um, you know, if you're very stressed, then your cholesterol will be used for, um, and your progesterone will be used for stress hormones as opposed to your sex hormones. So these things are quite complicated and adaptive. They're, you know, this whole endocrine system is a complex adaptive system. And just to throw horse's urine at these women with synthesized progesterone is not really the answer for most women and can wreak havoc. And the reason that it was done is because it was a, it was a substance that was synthesized in a lab and was um, and is patentable, and much of what gets treat what gets pushed as treatment in our in the practice of medicine is what is patentable and what can be made money upon. So no company is going to spend money marketing something that is natural because or bioidentical because you cannot patent those things, mm. and so that's kind of why there is a division and why you don't hear about nutritional treatments. People always say to me, well, how come, you know, people don't know these things? And I'll say, because, you know, there's no money. No one's going to market this to doctors. Nobody's going to market it to the public when, you know, there's no one company going to be able to reap the financial gain from it. So mm. that's kind of why things are dictated the way they are. But bioidenticals have been around a while. And for most women going through perimenopause and menopause, most women just need a little bit of um, progesterone. That's usually what they lose first. And that's one of the hormones and one of the main reasons that we see the insomnia around menopause time, you'll hear women have really disrupted sleep. And a lot of it is, is uh, it, 
due to the lack of progesterone. And you'll also hear women say this prior to their periods, you know, that the week before their periods, they're, they're irritable, they're anxious, they don't sleep well. And some of that can be helped by some bioidentical progesterone, which is very different than the synthetic progesterone, which is not progesterone, it's a progestogen and is associated with an increased risk of breast cancer, whereas the bioidentical progesterone is not. Now, is that the bioidentical progesterone made out of the natural products like yam? I, I do believe yam is one of them. Yam and, and soy are the two main um, uh, plant substances that... Oh my gosh, now we have to worry about the GMOs and soy, right? Right. And so <laughs> oh, no. that, it's true. I mean, you know, a lot of soy is... is um, I hope you, my dog barking in the back doesn't bother you. Um, the, the, that is one of the issues, obviously, is that soy is so genetically modified and you want to use a lab that starts with an organic soy base. Mm. Uh, the yams are not, are not so genetically modified. I mean, I'm sure there are, but in, in general, it's not the same issue that you see with soy. Mm-hmm. My goodness. Yeah. Oh, it's it, it it it's almost like how deep in the rabbit hole do you go? <laughs> because... Oh, I use that term all the time. Yes. Um we've we've really done a number in our environment externally and internally and uh as you start looking at it it becomes more and more disturbing and mm-hmm. you know, where do you stop? Yes, yes, yes. Well, I always say one one moment at a time and one change at a time (laughs) that we can make, you know. So, so today's topic, um, is, is not an easy topic for a lot of people to discuss. Uh, and, uh, so that's why it's, it's wonderful that you've come to share with us your expertise in this area. Um, libido, libido, I, that word, even when it's brought up, outside in any sort of uh, just discussions, it's almost like people shy away from it. Well, I think we have an epidemic of low libido. You know, it's not just women, it's Mm -hmm. men. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would say that the, the epidemic is more in the male population because women's libidos have always been thought to be more complex and not just reliant upon or reflecting the hormone levels. Um, Whereas it's always been thought that men, their libido is just about their testosterone level. And of course, now we have the drug companies kind of inventing this low T issue. Do men get lower testosterone? Yes. But the truth is that exercise, muscular exercise and intense exercise stimulates an elevation of testosterone in both men and women. And having, there's good evidence that having adequate muscle mass um, really promotes good testosterone levels. But that being said, it's not the whole picture. It's not the whole picture for men or for women. It's not that simple. You know, men are not just wired one way. You know, there's, there's psychological reasons for men to have low libido as well. We just tend to think about that occurring in women more. And it, in fact, women have greater levels of anxiety and do from a, from a standpoint of measuring anxiety in the population, women are twice as likely to suffer from anxiety disorders than men. And there's a lot of real um, evolutionary reasons for that, which we can go into at some other point. But um, anxiety will reduce your libido because one of the things that you need to be turned on is good um, parasympathetic or wrist and relaxation tone. 
And so many people are just so stressed out from their daily lives that they're in constant fight and flight and they can't allow enough vagal tone or parasympathetic tone to feel turned on. And, and so that happens in men and women. So it's not just about a testosterone level. You know, clearly I have seen women on supplemental testosterone and they still have very low libido. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, so, I mean, you, you sort of covered the difference between the, the, the libido between men and women. Um, and, and you've mentioned and spoken and about the, the different levels in someone's body uh, and how exercise. And now you said ex, like extreme exercise? Well, muscular, you know, bursts of muscular energy and muscular um, contraction. Can, can really you give us a, an example of what that might be? Um, you know, weight training, of course, um, but anywhere where you're building muscle. So, mm -hmm. you know, weight training is like, the, the one we tend to think about, but you know, these vibration plates that you stand on, I don't know if you know, if you've ever seen like a body, the power plate, or it's actually technology that came out of Russia as well. Many good technology came out of the cosmonaut program, but it's a plate that you stand on and it stimulates the muscle spindles that really seems to stimulate testosterone um, levels as well. Anytime you're building muscle, you're going to stimulate growth, certain growth factors in testosterone and androgens and, um, you know, running, in a muscular way. So not just kind of jogging, but where you're really, let's say trampoline or mm. bouncing, um, power pumping, like on your bike, on the bicycle, let's say. So you, anything where there's some burst of muscular activity, you are going to see an ele a transient elevation of growth factors in testosterone mm. and, um, fat tissue you know, especially if you're not eating clean. So fat tissue, there's a pathway called aromatase pathway and the aromatase pathway can take cholesterol and make testosterone. It can make estrogen. Mm. What we tend to see is that men, as they get heavy and sedentary become, well, what I say to my patients is men become women and women become men. So what we see with the aromatase <laughs> pathway is that their estrogen levels go up. They get more breast tissue. You know, they start meeting like the bro the bros ears or the man's ears, the bros. I don't know if you tell you that Seinfeld. <laughs> I didn't. Episode. I didn't realize those existed. The well, bros ears. No, you know that was a Seinfeld episode. But <laughs> all the men who are sedentary who have breasts, mm -hmm. and you know when you measure their levels of hormones, they have elevated estrogens, and. The estrogen is being produced in, a, in peripheral fat tissue um, through something called the aromatase pathway and some other pathways, in fact. But it has to do with insulin resistance and dense LDL. It's very complicated, um, but it has to do with diet. You know, insulin resistance is, you know, if you're sedentary, you eat too many carbs for what you're going to be using you are driving a lot of metabolic pathways forward. And some of those pathways affect your hormones and they affect them detrimentally. So women will often get more androgens and see hair loss and, and breakouts, mm. um, but they don't necessarily have a stronger libido. They, they might, it may or may not, you know, women may or may not respond to testosterone triggers. Mm -hmm. um, men will definitely see more estrogen and um, the estrogen has an inhibitory effect on the testosterone that they do have. And if they're not exercising, their testosterone levels can be quite low, even at young ages. Mm. Um, and so 
they will often respond to that lower testosterone and the higher estrogen in um, in a in a fashion where their libido is lower, and so it's it's complicated. Mm-hmm. But you know, if people are doing the right thing, you know, exercising, our bodies are meant to be moved. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. You know, we are not meant to be sitting all day in front of the computer or in front of a TV or just sitting all day, period. Um, but if you have adequate exercise and really eat only the amount of carbs that you need for the amount of activity level that you have and an adequate diet that's pretty clean, which it's hard to do that. You know, it's hard to eat a clean diet unless you're somewhat educated um, about the subject. I don't mean a college graduate. I, I mean, you know, educate yourself about what's healthy and what's not. Um, but if you're doing the right thing, and you're keeping your stress levels low. And I don't mean avoiding stress because we can't, but how you deal with your stress is so important. Mm. Meditation, yoga, you know, whatever it is, you know, some people find cleaning. God, I wish I did um, find cleaning <laughs> meditative. I really don't. I've been hoping for that to rub off on me from some of my patients. But, um, you know, if you can do something that really will allows you to, to clear your mind and allow some of this relaxation tone to come up, and you're doing the right things, your, your hormones should be in balance. But that being said, it's harder to achieve what I just spoke about than to not. Mm. Um, it takes a lot of conscious wish, you know, a consciousness around it and knowing what to do and um, doing the right thing. And people fall into a lot of bad habits for many reasons and um, come to me with very low libido and, you know, dense LDL and their hormones are messed up from drugs they're using. I'm not even talking about recreational. I'm talking about Mm -hmm. pharmaceutical, from the way they're eating, from their lifestyle choices. And a lot of these lifestyle choices are from poor um, self-image and from abuse in childhood. Um, And I don't mean even just physical or sexual abuse, but, you know. Habits. Yeah, habits and also being, you know, maybe a parent that was verbally abusive or a sibling that's frightened them or bullying at school. And, you know, they get into these habits where they're befriending themselves and soothing themselves with food or with watching TV as opposed to, you know, going out for a walk or a bike ride and eating healthy. Mm-hmm. So it's co- it's quite complex. You know, we're, we're complex systems. Um, and, you know, a drug, a one change isn't usually going to cut the mustard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so if, if one, I mean, the natural way of increasing the libido is to have that physical exercise, the, the actual high energy, you know, exercises, uh, quite frequently, I would assume, would you say once a day, would you, and for a certain period, of course, body size, et cetera, will, will all have a factor, but any examples that we can give the audience? Yeah. Well, what I tell my patients is an hour a day of movement. It can be walking, it can be yoga. Um, but it also depends on, you know, some people are just more physical than others. You know, there's a lot of studies looking at people who thin people tend to move more, you know, um, I, if you watched me, you know, I'm pretty hyper. So even though I have a, a job where I'm sitting and talking to people, I'm running around all the time when I'm not doing that. You know, that's mm-hmm. just my nature. I'm dancing when I hear music. I don't even realize I'm doing it. You know, there are people like that. They're moving and, and they're, they just move more. Whereas some people are really sedentary. It's just their nature. They need to make more of an effort. So for me, you know, while I like to work out every day, when it's bad outside and I've got a lot of writing to do, I, I might have two or three days a week where I really don't do that. Now I walk my dog and I'm walking, but if you followed me, I'm 
running around the house and I'm dancing while I'm cooking and I'm doing all those things. Uh, but I don't count that stuff, you know. Um, but I would say for most people, if they have a sedentary job, they need to make an effort for an hour a day minimum mm. to get some moderate activity in. You know, it's got to be a bike ride or a yoga class or walking or a run, something, jumping mm-hmm. on the trampoline and stretching, you know, something. F- and I tell people, try something fun. It, my, and even are, dancing, really. I mean, this. Oh, <laughs> dancing. So, it moves I mean, that I, Kundalini energy inside the body, that yeah, core. It, it really, dancing is amazing, but I think it's important to do what feeds you. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm a dancer. So, you know, I'm in dance class a few times a week and I'm in aerial dance class a few times a week. And, you know, I taught dance a few times a week. Where for do your... you find the time? Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, I'm a juggler. I'm definitely a juggler. But so I tell my patients they have to find something they love or they at least like, because if you're miserable doing what you're doing and you go to the gym, the other thing is if you go outside, it's really important to get the sunlight, you know, to really have your brain acknowledge sunlight during the day and to be outside. And there's studies looking at people exercising outside versus inside. And if you're outside, you're more likely to stay out there and do it longer. Mm. Uh, and I think it's important to also be connected and feel connected to the earth. So it's important to not just be in the gym all the time. I don't, I don't think people really, it doesn't feed their soul for the most part. Now, some people just love weightlifting and, you know, great for them. That's great. But I would say it's great to get outside and walk and, um, you know, feel the earth beneath your feet and get the sun on your face mm. and in your eyes and, and recognize that you're outside. Um, and it's not feasible for everyone. And, you know, especially working parents that, you know, have a j- job, they work long hours, they've got kids to run home to, then you do what you can. And if it's an exercise bike and you do it in 15 minute intervals, three times a day, four times a day, that works too. It could be a hula hoop, you know, these great weighted hula hoops. And you could put music on and do that for 10 minutes at a time in between patients or take a 10 minute desk break, you know, from, from working. There's a lot of ways of doing it, but the bottom line is you have to move your body and you have to eat. And it's not calories, it's carbohydrates. You have to eat the carbs, only the amount of carbs that you're going to really be expending. So if you have a physical life, you can eat more carbs. If you don't, then you're carb loading. You should be really eating minimal carbs. And it's, again, it's not the calories, it's the insulin response that is what wreaks havoc in our bodies with our hormones and makes people fat. It's not the calories, it's the metabolic response to the calories. Mm. And it's very important. It's very, and it's very related to our hormone levels. So a leaner body that, that is eating less inflammatory foods, which is less carbohydrates, um, that's active is going to be better and have, have more libido um, and all things being considered, all things equal, meaning no emotional trauma um, than a body that's not all those things I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Oh my, <laughs> that's a and lot to take in everyone. But now. So people who run ultra marathons and, you know, yes. and are over exercising, actually their libido is really low and they often don't have any libido. Oh, so that's there's interesting. A so, so over exercising can actually switch it the other way around. Absolutely. Wow. Oh my God. Especially for men. But we're talking about really over exercising. Mm-hmm. I mean, people who do Ironman. Athletes. 
major athletes, like Ironmen, like running a 50 mile race, um, you know, running 20 to 25 miles on a daily basis. We're not talking about somebody who goes out and does four miles a day or five miles a day or an hour and a half or three hours of Pilates and yoga. That's not going to do it. Mm -hmm. But my ultra marathoners who tend to be a pretty OCD lot to begin with, (laughs) um, you have to be, can't do it. You can't train for Ironmen and not be obsessive compulsive. You just, how can you? You know, it's hours a day going to just exercising for months and months and months. My goodness. Okay, so you all heard that, right? If you, you can overdo it and your libido is just going to drop. <laughs> right. Um, so, so what do you think about um, all these uh, medications? Not like much. The, like the Viagras and things like that that oh, they've brought oh. out. Okay, like the Viagras. Okay. Mm-hmm. I thought you were talking about like the psychological, the psych meds. Um, oh, no, the psych meds. Oh, that that I've heard uh, does plays, kills not, everything, not just the libido. Not, yeah. <laughs> yes. And if you thought you were depressed before, try having zero libido and zero orgasmic functionality, and then you, you'll find you're really depressed. Oh. Um, the Viagras, you know... I'm sure it, it's appropriate for a certain population, people who really have physical reasons to have uh, dysfunction with their vascular tree, older men. But that being said, there's ways of reversing and preventing those kinds of problems. And for many men, I mean, many of my patients in their 60s and 70s and even early 80s, they do not need Viagra. Um, but a long time type 1 diabetic, Mm. Um, that's what we used to say. Of course, now we see way more type two diabetics and those labels are going to change, um, because they're not really the same disease, but any disease where there's lots of sugar and inflammation, you're going to have small vessel damage. And, um, you know, the Viagra also works when there's poor heart rate variability, meaning poor parasympathetic tone, which is related to stress. Mm. So while the pills work, they are a slight risk. There's people who die, you know, who have sudden heart attacks on them. Um, and there is probably a better way of achieving the same result, but it's more work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It takes the patient, it takes, you know, work. You'd have to want to change your lifestyle. And that's, you know, let's be, reason, let's be rational. Not everyone's going to do that mm-hmm. and, and want well, to do it. Our society is, is uh, for the past several decades, has been such a pill-popping society you know, and only the quick fix, worse. right? The quick fix is just take that and we'll be fine. <laughs> well, we market, you know, pharmaceutical. This is one of the only countries, and it might be the only country that markets drugs directly um, through advertisement to mm-hmm. the population. It doesn't happen in the rest of the world. Um, and that has a huge impact on our culture. Mm-hmm. <sighs> There's so many things, so many different directions that we could go with this, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's not I know. Like, thought it was gonna be, I'm sure you thought there's gonna be like a few easy little <laughs> Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. After after a whole year of doing these shows, it's like, oh, we could take go down so many pathways. That's why most of our speakers, we have to schedule them back at some point in time, you know. Right. Right. Um, so coming right. back to libido and um sexual stimulation. Um, again, you know, it's it's one of those topics. If you speak about sex, you are sort of uh, categorized in this category of personality or 
Yeah, I mean, I always speak about sex. So, yeah. you know, my, my friends and acquaintances know that's going to come up if I'm in the room. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, I have, I, you know, at one time in my life that I, I was told you need therapy because you just think too much of that. <laughs> you just, everything, you know, you, you, you just enjoy sex too much. You need therapy. <laughs> you know? Wow. I don't. Yeah. You well, know, that was, that's our society. That. Yeah. That's it can be, society. it can be, but I think that most people are quite interested in really talking about it and hearing about it unless they're really repressed and, you know, they've got issues usually in other areas as well. But most people, you know, behind the closed door, and I don't mean in the bedroom with me, I mean in my office, in my consult room, <laughs> um, you know, because I'm so frank about it and yes. I just come right out and ask my patients, you know, how's your orgasms? You know, how are you functioning? That they get pretty comfortable talking about it because it's no big deal for me to talk about it. And mm-hmm. I make them very comfortable. And most people want to talk about it because I've seen patients who've been in therapy, who've been in analysis and haven't, it hasn't really come up. Well, most, you know, obviously in analysis, it should come up. Um, but definitely in psychotherapy, it often doesn't come up. And um, patients are often reticent to bring it up because they're ashamed or they mm-hmm. feel bad about themselves or they're uncomfortable talking about it. They were maybe raised in a home where it was uncomfortable to talk about it. Um, but I do find that patients one-on-one really want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And they're relieved that I bring it up. And um, especially if they have a problem because they want to know what can they do. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, now, can you share with us uh, the pros and cons of sexual stimulation? I don't really see the cons. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> I, That's I mean, great. You know, obviously in inappropriate moments, I suppose, you know, you could be stimulated in, in a, when you're, you know, about to make a speech in public. I mean, you know, there, there could be inappropriate <laughs> sexual stimulation, but I, I don't, other than that, I don't really see a con to, um, I mean, of course, inappropriate objects. So like, you know, pedophilia and those things are, yeah. you know, there's real issues, but we're talking about, if you're talking about sexual stimulation between two consenting adults, um, I don't really see a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and can you share with us the benefits and why it's important? I mean, I I know of people who are think it's wrong to self-stimulate, for example. Oh, well, really? I don't mm-hmm. know any evolved people who think it's wrong to self-stimulate. <laughs> Maybe that was judgment on my part, but I think that comes from dogma, right? I mean, that comes from certain religions have kind of the whole original sin or even the, you know, um, it's not even from original sin because we don't have that in in, in Judaism, but um, you're not supposed to spill your seed if you're an Orthodox man, but that's where it ends. Um, And and again, that's ultra-Orthodox. No one else is following that. Um, But I I think that that's a dogma and that's out of fear and that's out of controlling, you know, it comes from controlling the population, controlling women. Uh, I don't believe that anyone who is not dogmatic and who's educated thinks or believes that it's wrong to self-stimulate. I mean, have you run across that? Uh, Yes, I have. That's why I brought it up. Wow. Yes, I mean, absolutely. I really haven't. I mean, I have patients who'll say they feel funny doing it. Like mm-hmm. they feel ashamed. They wish they could, but they don't have a judgment that it's wrong. But they, you know, they just are 
they, they have some issues. They have some real hangups around it, but they know that it's a hangup and they wish that they didn't have the hangup. Yes. Yes. Uh, no, I have run into people who, who just feel it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's not uh, a a good thing. It's not. It's the wrong thing to do, and you shouldn't have to do that. Well, that, that's a different issue. Yeah. Have to do it. Um, but let's face it. It's you know the way lives work that you, maybe you shouldn't have to, but you do. And I don't even believe <laughs> you have to. Um, first of all, from a physiological standpoint, first from a health standpoint, uh, it's very healthy to have daily orgasms. I mean, that's the truth. For male and, and female? For male and female. Okay. Uh, for male health, prostatic health, absolutely. A prostate that has, you know, ejaculates on a regular basis is a healthier prostate. Mm. But from an autonomic nervous system standpoint, for men and women, you know, the, the um, sexual response involves uh, a real con- concerted effort between the two parts of the autonomic nervous system. And so that's the fight and flight and the rest and relaxation. And you get pelvic floor uh, involvement, which strengthens the pelvic floor. And so you have less, uh, you know, women, often women as they get older become somewhat incontinent. Mm -hmm. And that's from weak pelvic floor muscles. Um, so there's no reason that your pelvic floor should be weak. It's, you're much healthier sexually and just from a core standpoint to have good pelvic floor muscles, but from a, autonomic nervous system standpoint, which really affects every system in the body, your digestion, your uh, level of anxiety, your sleep, your heart rate, all those things involved a concerted effort between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic system. And there's no response greater than orgasm that where you really see, um, other than maybe deep meditation, where you see a real melding of those two working together um, in such an obvious way where there's feedback and it's, and it strengthens that response. So what we see is, a, an improved relaxation response, which is very important because most people walk around with a hyped up stress response <laughs> yeah. and in, right. So in order to yes. counter that, you know, meditation, you know, deep meditation. And so, but it, it takes a long time to even achieve right. a deep meditation. I mean, years for some people. Exactly. Exactly. And being able to sit, and I'm talking about a seated Zen, you know, eyes open meditation and really the prescription that we've seen that improves heart rate variability, which means it improves the parasympathetic or vegetative response is exhaling twice as long as inhaling and trying to slow your breath rate down to about five times a minute, which is really slow. That's like Mm. counting to five on your inhale and 10 on your exhale. And and a lot of people can't do that without holding their breath, which you don't want to do. And so after an orgasm, you automatically have increased parasympathetic tone. So there's a relaxation response, which is why many people fall asleep. Um, And that is something that is very beneficial and unusual in our daily lives because everyone's so busy being stressed out Mm -hmm. and financially work uh, responsibility if they have kids or aging parents, um, you know, especially for women who often are taking care of kids and aging parents and working. (laughs) Really, that that is what we see. I mean, that is in any culture. I mean, you know, around the world that it often comes down Let's face it, it, it comes down often mm-hmm. to the women to 
be, even if they're working full time, they are primarily, you know, the daughters are the ones who take care of the parents usually. I mean, it's a generalization, but, you know, that's the majority of of the reality. Um, And it's usually the mother who ultimately is the one responsible for finding the babysitter or taking the kids, schlepping them here and there, even though they're working and the husband or the father's working. Um, So women do tend to have more on their plate. It's just the reality. Yes. Yes, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I I do believe uh, uh, that is because it seems like such a part of the life that we really don't realize that it adds to the stress or stress level. You're not allowed to, and this is what I hear from my patients and what I see is that people really aren't allowed to sit back and breathe. And if they do, they tend to do it with an Ambien or with a glass of alcohol or a joint. And so their body really isn't learning to do that on its own. Um, And if they've been set up in childhood from like a family of origin that was quite dysfunctional where there was fear or anxiety on a regular basis in the home, their autonomic system is really set up to hold on to that fight and flight tone. And it makes achieving sexual, you know, stimulation, you know, even just feeling in touch with the wanting, the desire harder because you need rest and relaxation tone. You need the vegetative tone to be in touch with that. Mm. And so that is, a problem. And we see men also overstressed, eating poorly, inflammate, a lot of inflammatory markers are, you know, elevated when I'm looking at these guys who come in with low libido. But I also see young guys who've had an illness, um, you know, a, a, an acute viral illness can actually set you up for a precipitous drop in, in testosterone mm. levels and androgen mm. levels, and that can be rectified. But, um, our society is so quick to take a pill and the, you know, the pills, the hormone replacements like mm. testosterone will shut down your own production. So you, you never want to jump to taking exogenous hormones as your first choice because it does shut down your own production. Now, obviously women in menopause, you know, a lot of their production is shut down, at least their estradiol production. Um, and older men, you know, maybe, uh, in the 60s and older, if they really have very low testosterone, we're probably not going to induce a lot of testosterone. But you can. There are things you can do, certainly. Um, Will the exercise still affect it at that age? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Diet, exercise, uh, electrical stimulation like electrical acupuncture or some of these other devices like the Skinar that I use, but electrical acupuncture on the right points. But exercise and diet are so important. You're Mm -hmm. not going to get there without the exercise and diet. Um, so there are things you can do, but it's a mistake to sh- automatically sh- throw younger men, you know, 30s, early 40s on testosterone replacement because it shuts down their own mm. system. Mm. Amazing. Something to help it is going to shut it down. Well, that is unfortunately a lot of truth. That, that, that's a truth in a lot of medicine. A lot of the drugs that we see used for the very thing they're used for cause the same thing. So antidepressants, long-term use, increased depression, and in short-term use, and many people will increase suicidology. Um, and we know that from, from studies. I mean, this isn't, you know, this is mm-hmm. well-known. This isn't something that's just, you know, a, a somebody's theory. This has been seen and, and, and 
and proven in studies. You know, look at Beneva, look at these bisphenate drugs. When they came out, I knew, and many of us knew, that they would in fact increase bone fractures, the very thing they're supposed to be preventing, right? But the only thing they can do, they increase your bone density in the first few years, but the bone is very fragile and brittle, and so it breaks more easily. And that was predicted. I mean, you could predict that if you understood physiology because they prevent the breakdown of bone, but bone is constantly remodeling. When you exercise and pull against gravity, you're pulling on the bone from the tendon. And that that very exercise, that movement is what breaks down the bone and replenishes the bone with new bone. So it's stronger. Mm -hmm. And so the bisphenates interfere with that function. And so from day one, I said, well, why would anyone prescribe this? It makes no sense. You're going to see increased fractures, which of course is what we see. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the very thing that we prescribe, and we, I mean doctors, not me, but the very thing that most doctors prescribe often cause this, the very thing that they think they're preventing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you don't see it until years later, of course. Right. Yes. Uh, in the case of anti- antidepressants, it might not be years later. It could be weeks later. Mm. Oh, my goodness. You yeah. have so much to learn, so much to learn. Um, so with, uh, with our bodies and right now, an hour of really good exercise, an orgasm a day <laughs> keeps depression away. <laughs> Absolutely. And sometimes two or three. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, that's good too, right? Yeah. Um, uh, now, now, what about, you know, as a woman, uh, we go through so many physical changes in our lifetime, especially through childbirth. You know, our hormones go all wonky, et cetera. They go bounces here and there. And our bodies change during that time. Now, how does, what are some of the effects that you've seen from that? Of course, this is a question for those women who may be planning on having children or who are about to have children. Um, what what changes and effects have you seen from childbirth, and and uh, are there ways to prevent certain certain of these outcomes or to help the body bounce back better? And of course, I am I am going towards you know back to the uh, still staying on the subject of you know sexual stimulation mm-hmm. and how that changes because clearly there are big changes. <laughs> Yes, there are. And I think that they're adaptive. I mean, I th- one of the reasons that women often lose their libido for the first several months, maybe to a year after having a baby, is that they need to focus on the baby and their libidinous energy. And I don't mean that in a sexual way, but their deep love and, and, and their focus becomes the baby and not their partner. And some of that is necessary to some degree. Um, it can go overboard, which is problematic. Um, and so I think that to un- not get down on yourself for having a low libido after delivery, of course, during pregnancy, libido is crazy high, um, but that often changes. First of all, you can't have sex for the first six weeks after delivery. Um, and many we- women who are breastfeeding because of the, the hormone, the progesterone predominance and, and some of the hormonal oxytocin, the changes in breastfeeding, they also feel quite dry and their libido is is really diminished, but that is temporary and will come back. And I think that some of it needs to be temporary. Your focus needs to be on the baby and not on the partner, you know? So when you fall in love, your focus is all about your partner and the two of you together. But 
when you have a baby, you really need to be all, the baby needs to be all encompassing you. It's got to be your main focus in terms of attention. And, um, and I think that's adaptive. So, you know, obviously it can go overboard. I don't want to state that it's, you know, it should be a hundred percent and obsessed, but you know, many women do feel that way to some degree in the, in the first few months. And I think that's okay. It's a, it's a stage. Just understand that you will bounce back and some of it, for some women, they have to stop breastfeeding at, at a year um, because they feel like they're not going to get themselves back. That wasn't the case for me. I mean, I breastfed for years. My son was giving me really good rational reasons why he should continue breastfeeding. It was like, I realized it was probably time to stop. But, um, <laughs> he was four. But, but um, you know, I think for some, it's very different for women. Some women say, you know, they can breastfeed for two years and their libido comes back at six, seven months and it's not a problem. And other women say, you know, at, at 10 months, I had to stop breastfeeding because I just felt like I wasn't myself. So everyone's a little different. And, but I would just say to know that you're going to go through phases and yourself, you'll come back to yourself and your libido will come back. You know, you can lose your mojo for a few weeks or months, but that that is not permanent. Um, mm. and it shouldn't be. And if it is, you have to look at other things, you know, is there, um, a problem between you and your husband or your partner? Um, and is there a problem with you physically? Um, or did it bring up, you know, was there some postpartum depression because it brought up, brought up some latent issues from your childhood? So, you know, again, it's temporary and shouldn't last too long, but you need to give yourself room room for it. You do. Mm-hmm. And it'll come back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good to know for those of you out there. And of course, uh, yes, the body changes a lot, uh, which brings us also to the, the way we both met uh, Dr. Bark, which is through a company by the name of Intamina. Yes. And Intamina, we uh, ran into them at their booth at uh, the Natural Products Expo West here in Anaheim, California. And they were a lovely group of women uh, that shared, you know, about their product with us. And I was captivated. As a woman, I was captivated. I know uh, my camera person was captivated. Our assistants were captivated because, you know, here is... Uh, Uh, a company that really has taken women's health into consideration and your statement about, you know, orgasm a day, that's really wonderful you know, (laughs) to be able to do that. And they've come out with some products to assist women and men because they do have, have the the massages that, that also um, is uh, supports men as well. And, uh, be, and also some other products too. Um, and I do believe you're quite familiar with the products yourself. Yes. Yes, I am. I think they have really well made and designed products. They're very thoughtful. They've been thought out. They have, you know, um, just a great team, I think, of, of engineers and, and health uh, specialists who have designed these products with lovely, you know, made from really lovely materials mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Safe materials, safe, you know, the dimethicone silicone materials. As opposed um, to latex. As opposed to latex, yes, there, there is some of their um, items are washable and you can plug in, so you don't mm-hmm. waste batteries. Um, but they make a whole line, and there's a bunch of products that are coming out that are in their pipeline that are also lovely. Um, their their Lily Cup, which is a menstrual cup that is probably the best menstrual cup on the market, um, 
is phenomenal and I use it. I think it's amazing. And, um, but I think their whole line and Intamina is a kind of a, an offshoot of, of Lilo. And some people might know Lilo. Lilo is, it came first and it was just sex toys and, um, some intimate wear. And then Intamina was developed, but it's the same, it's the same engineering. It's the mm-hmm. same level of design in their, in their, um, sex products. So they're what we call toys are wonderful. I think that, um, you know, I sell them in my office to my patients. They're really happy with them. I've never heard, um, you know, a patient make a negative people, people say it becomes their, their best, their new best friend. <laughs> or they'll say I have a date tonight with my Soroya, you know, which is the name of the toys. So, which is, yeah. um, I mean, but I think it's important for women to, um, to know their bodies and, and to, you know, exercise their pelvic floor. And, um, it's important for men too, of course, but we're focusing on women right now. Yes, I think, I yes. think that's why you brought up Fentamina because the line is focused on women's health. Yes. Yes. And, and I do have a, a few of their products here, which, you know, you can see, and these are sold j- just in like Walmart and, and places like that. So it's, you're not like going into a, what do they call it? The the oh yeah no you're not going into like... adult adult uh, shops <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so to no. say to get these and you were saying that they were also sold at airports. Yes, I've seen the whole line of Intimina and Lilo at wow. um, international airports. Wow, that's amazing. I, I, you know, interesting for you know plane time activities. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, suppose it's a long flight. You have a blanket, um, but. You know, yeah, I've seen them at the airport. That's, so that's that amazing. was really interesting. Yeah. Well, you you know what is what thrills me is their uh, LaSalle Kegel balls. They are great. I've given They're, them to patients who really, they, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, my patients love them. I have not tried it. I, I should just to try them, but um, I've given their their those line that line yes. to numerous patients for for strengthening and tightening, mm. and they say how wonderful they are. Well, you know, yeah. it's it's different. They come in amazing. different sizes. They they are different weights actually. They and there is uh, I think they sell them singly, but they also sell them in a box of all three weights as well. Right. And what's amazing is you start off with the one that is of course the lightest weight, and you know we hear people. Year after year, of course, through our <laughs> growing up about Kegel exercises, keep doing your Kegel exercises. And and half the time, people are not doing it right. And that's right. then you have a baby and you wonder, oh, that's where incontinence comes from, <laughs> you know, from all that pushing and using all those muscles. And, and it takes, it's not, um, for some people, it has been difficult to strengthen you know, that healthy floor and the vaginal walls. Absolutely. And it's not just from having a baby. I've seen women who have never had children or had C-sections and still had continence problems and bladders that have dropped. Mm. And these types of exercises can actually strengthen them to the point where, uh, there's no problem at all anymore. That's amazing. And so, yeah, it is amazing. And, but it's like any other muscle. It makes sense. You know, yes. you're exercising a muscle. If you don't exercise it, it's going to atrophy and weaken. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it's the weakening of, of the vaginal wall, as well as the pelvic floor that allows the bladder to drop. Uh, so you can strengthen that. You really can protect yourself and reverse the incontinence. Yes, yes. I, I mean, I have never seen these before. This is the first time I have seen them here in the U.S. I don't know if you've seen them in Europe or, or no doubt, well, no doubt Asia, that's where that's where it comes from. In Asia, I mean, Benoit balls, right? Japan has had a had a oh, culture. That's right. Thing. Benoit balls. I mean, that's what 
they were used for, which was vaginal exercising to strengthen themselves. And they've been around a long time in Japan. Yes, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Now that you brought them up, yes. And I mean, they're just so fantastic. The way these are designed with the little string and also... um, uh, so you start off with the lightest weight and you and keep that you held in. Right. Yes. And so ladies. <laughs> yeah, I can't highly recommend, recommend it. <laughs> right. If you feel you you're you need a little help down in that area strengthening or you've got some incontinence, this is the way to go. It's something you can do on your own. Um and a lot of people who have like vulvodynia, we I know this is not what we're talking about, but I have found that along with um, a male equivalency problem, which is Peyronie's, I have found that both of those things really respond to reducing the excessive sympathetic tone. Whereas they get put on these crazy diets where they can't eat any oxalates and try a diet where you can't eat any oxalates. Um, First of all, it doesn't work. And they're like, they've got such a limited diet. It's ridiculous. But that also is related to... uh, kind of trauma in the area where there's increased tone. So it could be Mm. from physical trauma birth, or it could be from emotional trauma from childhood, but there tends to be pain and then atrophy in the area and they can't have intercourse. And, Mm. you know, um, once we correct that, then they're very thin and weak down there. Mm. So these, these strengthening balls have been amazing for those patients. Yes. Yes. And would you uh, recommend them even for people who are elderly, because, you oh, know, sure. as, as women, sometimes they may not have any issues till they reach their seventies or eighties. Absolutely. I mean, people in their seventies and eighties are having sex, <laughs> you know, yes. and who wants to walk around incontinent at any age, right? There's no reason you need to be incontinent just because you're 80. So, um, absolutely. Especially if you've been, uh, inactive, shall we say for a while? Um, I don't recommend inactivity. So, and I don't, what I mean is, you know, if you don't have a partner, that's fine, but you know, get a good toy and use it and enjoy it. (laughs) And, and that, that, you know, what's interesting is, and, uh, we, spoke about this on one of our medical shows, uh, which there's so much about sexual activity that is taboo or, or people don't outwardly speak about it in public. And yet here I go to Naples and, uh, we're walking through, you know, the, um, the name is, is leaving me where, where that, uh, Pompeii, we're walking through Pompeii and the streets and, oh, and, yeah. and, and, you know, everything, everything. It's like they're all, you know, you have these uh, carved um, penises directing you. Absolutely. To, yeah. Oh, you yeah. Know. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I know. Um, it, it's, it, it's a leftover from Victorian era, which, which there was a lot of sexual activity going on in Victorian era, yes. but it was um, a feigned kind of, uh, um, a fane, whatever you would call it, I suppose, being prim and proper, mm. um, which maybe made it all more alluring, you know, who knows, but there's been times before us where they were people, the society was way more open mm-hmm. about sexual life and sexual activity than we are now. We're, we're you know, a little backwards here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is quite amazing. Uh, I, I saw a documentary even on a tribe of people that really were were hidden away in one of the rainforests, and and they had no fighting 
infighting. They had no like jealousy and everything. I mean, everyone was open. Everyone, you know, there was no, you had a partner, but that partner could be with other people as well. And, you know, they would have children. And it was only when the Western world came in <laughs> and started to bring in, you know, what marriage was and and start to put those parameters down. Suddenly, there's a whole bunch of infighting. And, oh, know, yeah. Well, you know, there's problems. a whole tribe that, um, there's a tr- hill tribe in China, in the Himalayas. And um, they have no term for father because the, it's a metro, matrilineal tribe. Mm. There's um, once a, a woman has her period, she's kind of paraded in front of the village naked. She gets her own room and whatever man wants to sleep with her puts his belt in front of her door. And if she takes your belt inside, you're accepted. And um, women have babies and they're raised by their them and their mothers and their brothers and their uncles, but there's no word for father. Mm. It, there's a great book about this, mm. this tribe um, and it's called Leaving Mother Lake. And it was written by a woman who left the tribe to be a, a singer, a professional singer. Um, and so she was uh, kind of sought out by the Chinese government and brought to Beijing in the uh, conservatory there. But And she lives in, in San Francisco now. But it's a very interesting um, account of a completely different culture where, mm-hmm. you know, women hold all the power around sex and reproduction and men are just uncles and brothers. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's uh, quite a concept here. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, thank you. That that is and the book is called Leaving Mother Leaving Mother Lake. Leaving Mother Lake. Leaving Mother Lake. Mm, that would be a, a wonderful book too to it's read. It's a great book. Oh, and it's, you know, in in clear contrast to let's say The Bookseller of Kabul you know, which is about a journalist who stayed with a bookseller in Kabul and how he would just go and get another wife and the women had no say and they had no say over their sexual lives. Mm. You know, in Leaving Mother Lake, the, this hill tribe, these women have complete say over their sexual lives. Mm. It's basically everything's up to them. Mm. Wonderful. Well, there's a, a gamut of books that everyone can read and research. Um, so Dr. Tony Bark, thank you so much. Is there anything that you would like to share with our community uh, before we complete this hour with you? Don't be afraid to have more and better orgasms. <laughs> That's that it's a is, good message. Oh, right? it's a it's great a good, message. Good message to leave with. It I would is think. a great message. And that's for male and female. Absolutely. Oh, you yeah. Know, libido keeps your health strong internally. And uh, it, it increases your confidence, too. I mean, there's a lot of research on that, that people that have healthy sex lives and have frequent sex tend to feel more confident. But it's all related. You know, people mm-hmm. who exercise and stay in shape tend to have higher sex drives and better in report more satisfaction with their sex lives. And then that in turn fuels them feeling more confident, which in turn probably fuels you the confidence to go and work out. So it's all a cycle, but it's, it's inertia and just jump in and get on the inertia train. There you go. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dr. Tony Bark, for sharing your expertise with our community. And we look forward to having you back on our shows again. And of course, we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us on this new platform of information and education. We're grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better.
We invite you to join us live on Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Time, 1.30 Eastern Time, Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. Again, thank you, and until next time, namaste. Namaste.